Welcome to the sixth episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. As always, this podcast is based on the newsletter, What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan. And if you go to our Instagram, whlw-kurdistan, you can find links to the newsletter. I am your host, I am Gilles Shouani, and today's episode is going to be divided into two parts. The first part is news from all parts of Kurdistan, as well as some international and non-region specific news. The second part is a segment about the Kurdistan flag to commemorate the Kurdistan flag day on December 17th. So starting off in Rojava, an olive branch between Rojava parties. The North Syria administration, basically Rojava but with a fancy and political title, has rescinded its ban on ENKS and has welcomed them back to the region as a sign of unity. We talked about this last week as well. The uh, the administration is now opening its borders to other Kurdish parties, parties who have been up to this time banned from Rojava, and this comes as a direct result of the Turkish invasion. Also this week, Muslim Abdi urges for international intervention. Muslim Abdi, the commander general of the SDF forces, reiterated the need for international observers in Turkish-occupied parts of Rojava. SDF reports and reports that foreign policy have collected confirm attempts of demographic change, and Abdi warned that a repeat of Afrin, where Turkey ethnically cleansed the city of Kurds, would be imminent if action isn't taken. And this is a direct quote from the article where Muslim Abdi was interviewed. Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army is threatening displaced residents, calling their personal cell phones and making announcements in mosques across the region telling them that if they return, they will be beheaded and killed. Like we said last week, the news from Rojava seems to have stabled and things are, again, relatively calm. So that is all the news we have for you from Rojava. Next up is Bashur, South Kurdistan, Iraq. PUK began his conference, dodging a 12th hour delay attempt. PUK has begun his fourth conference in his 44-year history. There were talks of further delays, and it's rumored that up until midnight before, a delay was becoming more and more inevitable. What changed? Well, we don't really know, but they finally managed to pull through. The conference is still ongoing and will most likely continue to do so, even by the time you listen to this podcast. So anything that we mention here may be subject to change. However, we can give you information on events as far as the first day's results. Here's a small breakdown of everything so far, and we apologize if we can't go into too much detail. A new system will be formed comprising of 121 leadership council members and 8 peers. The leadership acts and votes while the peers quote-unquote guide, and we believe that they may also have veto rules. Kostrad Rasul will be heading the peerage team, Barham Saleh, the Iraqi president, and Khubat Talabani, Deputy Prime Minister to the KRG, and Rewas Fayak, Parliament Speaker to the KRG, were automatically voted into the Leadership Council due to their high-ranking roles within the government. Sheikh Jafar, KRG Vice President for Military Affairs, withdrew from the automatic entry, though things aren't exactly clear as to why. The remaining Leadership Council members and peers are supposed to be decided upon this week along with the party leader itself. Continuing with news about the Kurdistan government in South Kurdistan, 
Turkmen Front MP causes controversy. The head of the Turkmen Front faction within the Kurdish parliament refused to wrap the Kurdish flag around his neck during the Kurdistan National Flag Day, thus causing controversy within the region. While some of the criticisms demanded harsh actions such as forcing him to wear it or waving the flag, it should be known that this is an important point for the Kurdistan region. Democracy is easier said than done, and while this may test many, it is important to show that Kurdistan, unlike its neighbors or elsewhere around the world, can accept differing opinions on these matters. Elsewhere on Flag Day, a 5,000 meter flag was waved and carried by Peshmerga in the Mahmoud area. So I saw quite a few reactions on social media about this, and obviously as a Kurd and someone who celebrates Kurdistan Flag Day, I would be happier if everyone within the government celebrated it in equal fashion. But again, democracy is easier said than done. And we have to accept that there are factions or there are individuals who wish to exercise their democratic right to not celebrate it or to not wear the flag. This is okay, I think. I don't think it should be as controversial as it is. Of course, understanding the relationship between Kurds and Turkmen and Turks, uh, I can also understand where the criticisms are coming from. The Turkmen are supported by the Turkish states, so that gives you an idea of why some people are very harsh on him. But again, we should not be forcing anyone to do anything they do not want. One thing that really popped into my mind when I was reading about all this was the fact that in America, a football player who refused to stand for the national anthem was given so much backlash, and he all he was doing was exercising his, his, his freedom and his democratic right of freedom of speech. Those kinds of rights should not be taken away, and if we do want to be a democracy, like we claim to be, then we should be allowing for this. People should not be attacked for exercising their rights. Anyways, moving on from that for some more happy news. Boycott Weekly. Local production goes up, KRG is now helping, and Parliament working on a bill. A hectic week this week as it was revealed that the local products have gone up this year according to KRG's Agriculture Ministry, who have also revealed that they have banned the imports of certain fruits and vegetables such as pomegranates and, uh, <laughs> and onions, whilst placing heavy tariffs on other products. Uh, <laughs> the reason I left there was because I saw onions and... <laughs> well, see, I didn't know this before, but apparently us Kurds, we love onions to a remarkable extent. Uh, I have this friend, this Palestinian guy, and sometimes when we hang out, instead of like ordering food or getting some snacks, we like to cook and then watch a football game together or something. This one time I was over at his place and we're cooking and everything I'm making, there's onions in it. And then he looks over and he's like, oh, you really love Kurdish apples. And I was like, Kurdish apples, what do you mean? It's like, oh, onions, Kurdish apples. And I was still very confused by that statement. Then he continues to explain. He says that a lot of like other ethnicities around the region call onions Kurdish apples, jokingly, because Kurds love it so much that we, we eat them as apples. And then I began to think back over every meal that I like to cook. You know, I put onions in my salads, 
I put onions in my rice. I put onions in my lentil soup. I put onions in everything. So does my parents. So do my parents. And to be frank, so do almost all Kurds. So to see that the two highlighted fruits which are being supported by the Kurdistan government to be produced locally are pomegranates and onions. Pomegranates being almost like a national symbol for us and onions also becoming a de facto national symbols, I suppose. Just kind of made me laugh. Anyways, uh, things are looking better by the day for the for Kurdistan's local economy. Parliament Speaker Rewas Faiq earlier this week revealed that the cabinet would be working on a bill that is aiding local products while acknowledging that the region cannot solely rely on oil. Again, this is really wonderful uh, to hear that the Kurdish the Kurdish economy and the local economy is growing so immensely as such a in such a small period of time is wonderful. This this part of the podcast every week just puts a smile on my face. Anyways, let's move on from that. The oldest living person in Kurdistan dies aged 122 years old. Selma Abdul Qadir, the oldest resident in the Kurdistan region, has died aged 122 years old. Selma was born in 1897 in Shahrazur and has been widowed for over 40 years. She leaves behind 250 grand and great children. May she rest in peace. And speaking of women in Kurdistan, women's rights groups protest against discriminatory fatwa. Remember when we mentioned the taxi fatwa? Basically, this fatwa that came out saying that women would not be and should not be able to get into a taxi without a chaperone. Well, this week, women's rights groups have begun protests in Erbil, Hawler, and Slemani against the rightly labeled discriminatory fatwa. Luckily for the women, a fatwa is non-obligatory. But, non-obligatory or not, these fucking mullahs need to get their heads out of their asses. We cannot, we're not going to take Kurdistan backwards. And fatwas like this, which is... I don't even want to say conservative. It's it's just it's ass hattery. That's the best word I can come up with to describe it. Fatwas like this have no place in Kurdistan and should not have a place in Kurdistan. We're not going to let Kurdistan go backwards. And we need more progressive social movements and policies for Kurdistan and it makes me immensely happy that these women's rights groups have actually taken initiative. And are working and these groups have been working for a long time against immense pressure so from here from the what happened last week in Kurdistan podcast we wholeheartedly support them and will continue to cover their work now onto some news that will definitely put a smile on your face i mean it has for me cool guy from koya built his own wind turbine an awesome man by the name of salam nejmadeen aged 51 has built his own wind turbine, which he uses to power his home. While he doesn't have much of an education, his hobby in electricity has allowed him to build his own generating system, which he got mainly from old and used components. A teacher in his village has now requested Salam to do the same for the local school, which greatly lacks electricity. We wish them and the school the best. Guys, seriously, this episode is, for the most part, it's really upbeat and happy, isn't it? We have some more sad news later, but up to now, it's it's been a happy episode. I'm, I'm I'm smiling. I'm smiling, guys. Things are, in part, looking up. Every week, we try to give you as much 
as possible, but we don't want it to get too long either. This week in particular, we tried to focus on other topics. And while not everything mentioned here was light, it was a step away from the more somber or bloody news that we've had in the past. And just to add one more cherry on top of our holiday special, we have another bit of somewhat jollier political news. The Kurdish village of Alirash near Mahmur has repelled an ISIS attack on their area, wait for it, without any damage coming to their area. How amazing is that, guys? Come on. Give it up to the Peshmerga, honestly. No damage coming to the area. And they repelled an ISIS attack. That's fucking awesome. I am happy as shit. <laughs> I'm sorry for so much swearing this episode. I'm just... Sometimes when I get happy, I like to use um, explosive words. And there are certain swear words. They're just so explosive and nice. But come on, yeah. Well done to, to the village of Ali Rush and Mahmur. And well done to the Peshmerga. Putting their lives on the line to protect Kurds. This is fucking wonderful. Again, I'm sorry about the swearing. I'm just... Ah. Alright, alright, alright. Now we're going to move on to some news from Bakur then Rojhalat and some international news. It, that part is a bit more somber, but it's the news. So, Bakur. There's only one bit of news from Bakur today, and it's about Salahuddin Demirtas. Demirtas refuses to make statement for his freedom. Salahuddin Demirtas, who still sits in prison and suffered health issues last week, said he wouldn't demand his freedom from the Turkish state, as those in power in the country have no desire to implement any form of justice. He said, at a time when the law is trampled, elected officials are jailed, and murderers and rapists are set free. I do not demand my release. And while obviously we all want to see Demirtas free, in a way I, I commend the statement that he's made. We ought to, it's, it's a form of prote, prote, protest, you know? It's a form of protest saying, I don't even want to be free in a country which inherently is not free. I do wish he was free, but as it stands, this is, uh, this is a good statement to make. Hopefully the, the rest of the world is going to recognize that Turkey has become a dictator state, an Islamist dictator state. All right, moving on to Rojalat now. Kurdish protesters found dead. Irshad Rahmanian, a 28-year-old Kurd, was found dead a month after he had disappeared. The report says that Rahmanian had a hole in his head and his limbs were broken. Previous to this, other Kurdish protesters had also disappeared. Then their corpses were found dead. This is a common thread with the, with the protests that, that, that have been happening in Iran for the past, um, I think, about two months now. The regime has no tolerance for any form of expression that goes against the rule. So this is what they do. Keeping up with news from Rojhalat, border courier brothers, Kolbers, found frozen to death. Brothers Ferhad and Azad Khosravi, aged 17 and 14, were frozen to death on the mountainous border between South and East Kurdistan, Iraq and Iran. The brothers' bodies were found days after they went missing during their last trek. Couriers, known in Kurdish as Kolbers, had labeled them martyrs of bread due to them having to make the fatal journey just for their bare survival. When the bodies had returned to their village, people were waving pieces of bread as a symbol. 
In the year 2019 alone, more than seven underage couriers have been killed, whether it was due to the journey's natural challenges or shelling and murders by the Iranian regime. And following the return of their corpses, thousands in East Kurdistan took to the streets for their funeral. That is all the news from Rojalats. Next up is some international news. Erdogan presents plan to resettle refugees to the UN. Turkish President Erdogan this week presented his plan to resettle 1 million refugees back into the Turkish-occupied regions of Rojava, northern Syria. The plan requires $26 billion in foreign assistance and it was met with hesitation by many foreign leaders and human rights advocates. Once more, Erdogan threatened to flood Europe with refugees if the international community didn't accept his proposal. Seriously, what's the world seeing this guy? Just dump him already. Um, but with more news from the wonderful state that is Turkey, Turkey chooses to keep enslaved Yazidis. The ISIS lands, which now are under Turkish control, is reported to still hold 3,000 enslaved Yazidis. Yet, it seems Turkey is refusing to work to free those Yazidis, and is even denying aid to them in favor of helping Sunni Arab refugees. Seriously, Turkey is way out of line at this point. And I think some other people think that as well as American Democrats demand investigation of chemical use. This past week, four congressional Democrats formally demanded that the alleged use of chemical weapons by Turkey against Kurdish civilians be investigated. Ilhan Omar, who had been silent on Turkey's invasion from the start, was one of those Democrats. So, you know, um, I really hope this is the start of something that the international community can recognize that Turkey is just out of line. They do not operate according to any international law. They have been going rogue and making deals with Russia. They have been killing civilians, suppressing minorities, aiding ISIS. Come on. I hope things get better. We can only hope, I guess, and spread the news. Some more international news about Kurds. Facebook now offers automatic Kurdish translation. Facebook has added Kurdish to their list of languages that will automatically be translated. Sounds pretty cool, right? Well, yes, but it's still early days. The translations currently are at a more primitive level and may not necessarily make sense. Nonetheless, as time goes by, this will become even better for use. So regarding this, um, I don't know how to feel because you see, I've seen, I've seen Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. I've seen Instagram translate Kurdish to other languages and it's been horrendous. It's been more than horrendous. It's been insidious, to be honest. I've seen posts where there's no mention, for example, of Russians talk about Russians. Uh, there was a post by KRG posted the other day uh, where the government wished a happy a happy Ezi day, which is a Yezidi celebration, and there was no mention of Russia in that post. And then when I translated it to English, from Kurdish to English, it was saying something along the lines of the Kurdish people want to congratulate the Russian people for this and that. And it's really weird. But I hope with more user 
feedback, this can be fixed, or at least if the problem is not user feedback, the problem is just, I don't know, Facebook aiding Turkey and their propaganda, which Facebook is known to have done by banning Kurdish groups, banning Kurdish flags, etc., then user feedback is going to be, is going to prove beneficial. But either way, moving on, Egyptian president praises Kurdish resilience. When asked about the Kurdish struggle from a tearful participant during a youth conference in Sharm Sheikh, Egyptian President Fatah Sisi commended the ongoing Kurdish struggle and further made the student emotional when he acknowledged that the Kurdish identity, language, and culture cannot be eliminated. What was interesting in particular was that he mentioned the countries that Kurds face in their struggle. Usually when politicians of this caliber do something like this, they avoid the regular buzzwords, Turkey. But not President Sisi. His ongoing feud with Erdogan's Turkey has taken out any fear of buzzwords that might anger the tyrants, aka the fearless US president that's too afraid to use the words Armenian and genocide together. So yeah, maybe the tides are turning against Turkey. They are losing regional allies and international allies seem to be at least in part doubting them there's an old kurdish saying it goes translated means you can't reach the moon on donkeys and carts basically you can't achieve more and new things by using the same old methods if the world really wants and intends on having a stable Middle East, they have to do something about Turkey. Turkey is a problem starter. Turkey looks out for itself and no one else, even if that means it's at the expense of everyone else in the region, even their own citizens. Well, minority citizens. Anyways, this is the end of the first part, which was news about Kurdistan. The next part is a segment about the Kurdistan flag, in commemoration of Kurdistan Flag Day. On December 17th, millions of Kurds celebrated Kurdistan Flag Day. To commemorate the occasion, I wanted to add some historical background on the symbolic importance of Al-Arangin, the name of the Kurdish flag, which means the colorful flag. Al-Arangin was introduced in 1920 by the Khoibun party in the Paris Peace Conference. Khoibun was one of the earliest nationalist Kurdish parties, and the name Khoibun means independence. It was one of the earliest nationalist Kurdish parties of the modern era, and in 1927, they declared the Republic of Ararat, in Kurdish Komari Agri. It was one of the first attempts to create a Kurdish state after the signing of the Treaty of Lausanne. The flag in 1927 and that of today is almost entirely the same, with one exception, the sun in the center. Back then, the sun wasn't the 21-rayed sun we use today. It was a sun with many, many rays. It was later redesigned to have 21 rays because the number 21 holds symbolic meaning for the Kurds. Firstly, it's an important number in old Kurdish pre-Islamic religions. 
In the Yazdani faiths, Yazidism, Yersanism, and Alevism, it is believed that a soul is reincarnated after 21 days, and alluding to pre-Islamic identity of Kurds was a major aspect of Kurdish nationalism, and in some ways, it remains so up to this day. Due to the historic background, the 21 rays was chosen to symbolize the rebirth of Kurdish identity, which was emerging intensely during the 20th century. The sun sits on a white band, white representing coexistence and peace among the peoples of Kurdistan. Atop the white band is a red band, which represents the blood shed for freedom. And below the white is a green band, which represents the beauty of the Kurdish landscape. In 1946, a variation of the flag was used by Qazi Muhammad in the Kurdish Republic of Mahabad in East Kurdistan in Roshalat. However, instead of the sun, there was a coat of arms with a pen in the center. Qazi Muhammad was known to be a man who revered knowledge, and the pen represented wisdom and knowledge. And ever since 1992, the government of the Kurdistan region of Iraq in Bashur, South Kurdistan, has used Alarangin as his flag. Alarangin is very dear to us Kurds, and even though there are other regional flags and political flags, it remains to be seen as the nation's flag. And seeing it aloft in the mountains, with beams of light blaring through that yellow sun, is enough to rekindle the sense of Kurdishness, Kurdaity, in any Kurd. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Next week we'll be off for the holidays. And we'll be back on January 5th with the 7th episode. If you'd like to support us, you can support us through Patreon. You can go to our Instagram, whlw-curtisan, to find links to our Patreon. And you can also follow us on Instagram to see what we're up to and get regular updates. I am your host. I am Rajil Shwani. And from the What Happened Last Week team, we wish you happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, and to our Jewish listeners, happy Hanukkah. And Happy New Year, everyone.